My name is Ella Adams. And this is It Happened in Amherst. It happened in Amherst. It happened in Amherst. It happened in Amherst. For It Happened in Amherst. I'm Rebecca Pereira. I'm Emily Klein. My name is Olivia Marble. I'm Izzy D'Amico. This is Sarah Abdullahid. I'm Catherine Hurley. I'm Joey Albert. Welcome to the W.E.B. Du Bois Library. At 26 floors, it's the tallest academic research library in the world. It's located at the center of UMass Amherst, overlooking the beautiful campus pond, the regal old chapel, and the concrete monstrosity that we call Campus Center. It would be easy to assume that people keep silent in a college library, busy as they read a 20-page textbook chapter, listen to a Zoom lecture, or pound out an essay due at midnight. But our library is loud. Our library sounds like groups of students cramming before a midterm. Hands typing on rows and rows of MacBook and PC desktops. And a printer churning out essays due in 10 minutes. Our library sounds like an elevator creaking as it pulls itself up the floors. Remember how I don't have anybody Teachers lecturing on the newest developments in food writing and archivers filing metal Vietnam War artifacts into boxes. The W.E.B. Du Bois Library is a symbol of UMass Amherst. Look up the university on Google Images and the tall brick building shows up in nearly every photo because our tour guides and administration regularly brag about our library. I originally believed that the W.E.B. Du Bois Library represented solely the academic prowess of UMass. The library meant nothing to me outside my schooling, but the special resources, the library staff projects, and even the history of the library all revolve around the lives of students. When students petitioned in favor of naming the Tower Library after W.E.B. Du Bois, the name changed. When students asked for more study spaces, the school renovated floors to increase room. When the price of textbooks and college debt skyrocketed, free educational resources opened up to students. My name is Emily Klein, and I've spent my spring 2022 semester exploring the hidden secrets of the W.E.B. Du Bois Library. In this episode of It Happened in Amherst, I'll take you around the library with me and show you all my favorite spots. And hopefully, by the time we reach the end of this episode, you'll see this building as its own character, a reflection of student ambitions for the present and the future. Let's begin at the top, the 26th floor. Nope. The 26th floor is off-limits to undergraduates. It's a space that preserves the original intent of the library as a place for graduate students. It consists of a graduate study commons, faculty commons, a special event room, and my favorite, the archive storage. This is uh, archive storage space number one. 
The room we are in is one of three archival spaces in this building. The second one is two floors below us on the 24th floor. The Department of Special Collections and University Archives sits in between. Students who request archival materials can view them in the Special Collections office. If I put every artifact in the archives back to back down the highway, it stretches almost eight and a half miles. The archives themselves are off limits to anyone outside the nine archival staff. So it's just me, my insatiable curiosity, and about 45,000 feet of archives. Oh, and my tour guide, Jeremy Smith. Smith is an archival librarian for all journalism, communications, and public relations-related documents. Normally, he's busy processing over 500 boxes worth of Daniel Ellsberg archives. This collection, which you must bought for more than $2 million in 2019, holds every object related to the life and work of famous whistleblower and author of the Pentagon Papers, Daniel Ellsberg. Smith spends hours picking through the boxes from now 91-year-old Ellsberg. He combs through items as valuable as Vietnam military luggage and as mundane as old comic books. He then registers each object in the library's archival database and organizes these documents chronologically by topic and date. I can barely move in the 26th floor archival room. Boxes line the perimeter of the small room, and six shelves of gray boxes take up the rest of the space. The smallest ones are the same width as the portable audio recorder I'm using to record this. Larger ones are 15 inches wide. They contain paper documents like newspapers, scrapbooks, and records. The collections here are a monotonous New England history, a linguistic atlas of New England, New England Intercollegiate Lacrosse League documents, the Amherst League of Women's Voter Records, just records I assumed ended up in the recycling bin. Instead, they end up here. Smith says it's not the university's place to judge the value of one historical document over the other, especially when that judgment can involve prejudice. I should include not just the people who did all this great stuff, but just everyday people's lives, because that's what historians are looking for. I mean, it's very easy to find out what George Washington did. It's not so easy to find out what his maid did. Each time I asked Smith about boxes from collections he hadn't sorted through himself, we stopped our tour to explore. He pulled out laminated photos of Nazis from one box and film reels from feminist filmmaker Susan Kluckner in another. I found an 1872 mechanical frog coin bank hiding in the corner of a shelf. Jeremy shows me counterculture cookbooks with vegetarian recipes mixed in with random church cookbooks. We sat deciphering the date of a UMass fraternity photo based on the 1920s hairstyle. It's surreal to be able to touch and hold objects that would normally be behind glass. Especially the World War I artifacts. This looks like a, a suitcase? Yeah, I think this is a World War I era travel case or, or trunk, I guess you'd call it. That's Lloyd. Yeah, Lloyd E. Walsh papers. So here's uh, another box related to this is a helmet, World War I helmet. Oh! Woo! UMass accepts historical items for its archives if they fall into one of four categories. New England history, innovation and entrepreneurship, 
social change, and university archives. These vague categories probably explain why our archives are so large. I spent three hours in the university archives collection, and while I did find some unique pieces... Um, this says t-shirts. Does that mean it's pictures, or does that mean it's actual t-shirts? Actual t-shirts. <laughs> oh my god. I mostly focused on documents that explain the story behind the library's name. UMass called it the Tower Library before students petitioned to officially name the library after W.E.B. Du Bois in 1993. The idea stemmed from the university's existing ties to Du Bois. Du Bois's wife, Shirley Graham Du Bois, gave UMass almost 300 boxes of the W.E.B. Du Bois papers. The school named its African-American studies program the W.E.B. Du Bois Department of Afro-American Studies and hired Du Bois' stepson, David Graham Du Bois, as a visiting professor in 1983. But the movement to christen the campus landmark after the NAACP co-founder only started after black UMass residential assistant Arlen's Barasi came home to find his hall on the 17th floor of Washington and door covered in racial slurs and human feces. A Daily Collegiate article from October 8, 1992, reported students physically and verbally assaulting Barsi after he asked them to pour out their alcohol, which is prohibited in dorms. Both the hate crime and the administration's lack of response outraged minority students, Two days after the incident, between 50 and 70 students walked out of a public meeting in Moral Science Center where UMass administration intended to address racial tensions. The students stormed Washington Tower. They ran from floor to floor, yelling and kicking down doors to draw out the guilty party. 300 other students of color protested outside the Southwest Tower the same night in support of banning the host of the non-white student who beat Barasi. By October 11th, police reported eight other incidents of racist and anti-Semitic graffiti in dorms. The hate crimes even appeared in the New York Times, which reported racial tensions growing thick enough for the United States Justice Department to get involved. On October 17, 1992, UMass system president Michael Hooker came to Amherst to meet with black students at the Malcolm X Cultural Center in Southwest. There, Hooker told students that, quote, we have to change the culture of the campus, end quote. That message resonated with UMass student Martin F. Jones and inspired his future activism endeavors on campus, including the W.E.B. Du Bois Petition Coalition. The University Tower Library's name change wasn't the original focus of the Petition Coalition. Rather, Jones focused on the Minuteman mascot. At a plenary meeting in fall 1993, Jones asked new chancellor David K. Scott about changing the mascot from what Jones called, quote, a white man with a gun, end quote, to something more inclusive. The petition and protests began to generate student signatures in favor of changing the university's mascot and the Tower Library's name. The first time the petition appeared in the Daily Collegian was a small advertisement in the multicultural section on October 8, 
1993, exactly one year after the protests at Washington Tower. The petition's four demands revolve around creating a safer environment for Alana students. Alana is an old acronym for African, Latin, Asian, and Native American students. These are the petition's demands. One, keep the pledge made to Alana students in fall of 1992. Increase enrollment of Alana students by 30% at both graduate and undergraduate levels. Two, increase availability of scholarship money for economically disadvantaged students. Three, name the Tower Library after African-American educator, organizer, and leader, W.E.B. Du Bois. Four, change the UMass mascot from the Minuteman, a racist, sexist symbol of a white man with a gun, to a symbol that is more appropriate to an institution of higher learning. Four days later, on October 11th, Jones, president of the Graduate Student Senate, Shamala Ivachuri, and fellow Graduate Student Senate member, Colin Cavell, organized a protest over the mascot at the Cape Cod Lounge in the Old Student Union. At first, the university's administration supported the mascot change. A Daily Collegian journalist asked Chancellor Scott about the financial impact of removing the Minuteman mascot after the school had invested millions in advertising and merchandise featuring Sam the Minuteman. Scott's response, quote, justice isn't cheap, end quote. That phrase triggered the downfall of the mascot change and the rise of the library renaming. Republican governor of Massachusetts, William Weld, called the Minuteman mascot debate quote, political correctness run amok, end quote. UMass President Michael Hooker expressed his support for Sam. After this, Chancellor Scott rescinded his invitation to discuss scrapping the Minuteman, saying in a statement on October 18th that, quote, the second shot heard round the world apparently was fired when I said I would listen to and talk with students about the Minuteman mascot, end quote. In response, Jones went on a hunger strike from Monday, October 18th to Thursday, October 21st. Collins and Ivachuri organized another rally on the student union steps on the 21st at noon. To end the hunger strike, Scott agreed to speak with Jones over dinner at Patucci's. Jones's mother and associate vice chancellor of student affairs and campus life, Joanne Thomas Vanneen, also attended. In very Hamilton, room-where-it-happens fashion, Scott agreed to support changing the library's building name if Jones agreed to end the mascot protest. Ivachuri came to UMass to get her graduate degree in chemistry, but she says she spent most of her time on activism. She wrote articles in the Daily Collegian in favor of the petition. She took economics classes on Marxism. She skimmed through the Du Bois archives, and she held first the treasurer, then the president positions in the Graduate Student Senate. Ivachari says she hit a couple roadblocks after the agreement at Petucci's. Bureaucratic hoops were a huge one. Is the bureaucracy of administration, was that exhausting to get through? Oh, completely exhausting, like layer on layer um, of people in the middle. But because I think we were so vocal that we did manage to get to um, David K. Scott and Marcy Williams, like we did manage to somehow get past the bureaucracy. 
Admin, also consider naming the library after former UMass men's basketball coach, John Calipari. I thought it would be a no-brainer, but at the, at the same time that like UMass basketball was becoming pretty good, was doing really well that year, there was someone called Marcus Camby who kind of left UMass but later on went to be professional and there was a coach Calipari. So they suddenly started talking about naming the library after the basketball coach, which, um, which is why we started the um, petition and wrote all the articles and, and it was almost like he was going to give money to get the library named after him, and it just seemed completely outrageous. In the end, the Petition Coalition won out. In October 1994, Jones, Collin, and Ivachuri presented their reasons for renaming the library after Du Bois to the UMass Board of Trustees. The board agreed, and two years later, UMass held a dedication ceremony to officially rename the W.E.B. Du Bois Library. Uh, this dedication is in honor of W.E.B. Du Bois. This library houses the largest collection by And now it's time to close that page of history, leave the archives, and move on to the rest of the library. After all that archive information, I need a breather. The 23rd floor has the best 360-degree view of campus. Every single building of the main campus is in sight. The floor attracts a lot of parents and high school seniors post-college tour. These naive teens gawk at campus and imagine their future next to UMass students debating if it's better to drop out or take their organic chemistry tests. Students come here to make their work a little more bearable. Almost every desk has a butt sitting in it. When I went to visit the library's main attraction, I had a hard time finding a place to record my thoughts about the view. Empty aside tends to be the pond, which is funny because the building was meant to look over the pond. And that was one of the main things that they wanted to think about when placing the Mewee Beach Boys Library. Um, The side to my left looks over the Student Union, Campus Center, and Leaderly Graduate Research Center. To the right is the Old Chapel, the Fine Arts Center, and Southwest. In the back is South College and the Mullen Center. I will forever stand by my opinion that the UMass campus architecture feels disjointed. I mean, modern glass buildings next to decaying brick and concrete giants near dainty geometric shapes just doesn't make sense. But the panoramic view on the library's 23rd floor shifted my perspective a bit. Just below the beautiful sites are two cultural hubs, the W.E.B. Du Bois Center and the East Asian Reading Room. The W.E.B. Du Bois Center dedicates its work to spreading the writings and teachings of its namesake, its programs practice the social change and community building that Du Bois preaches. Breakfast with Du Bois occurs every Monday at 9.30 a.m. The center gives away free books written by Du Bois, educates communities in Du Bois' birthplace of Great Barrington, and holds workshops for community college students across the state. The East Asian Reading Room lives across the hall from the Du Bois Center. I hadn't even heard about it until I explored the library. 
The shelved walls hold books in three languages, Korean, Japanese, and Chinese. The East Asian Studies librarian, Sharon Domier, says that when the library first opened, reading rooms existed every three floors as a quiet place for graduate study. Today, the East Asian reading room is the last of these rooms left. Domier's goal is to provide easy access to Chinese, Japanese, or Korean literature for any students who wish to learn these languages. And so the room next door, the East Asian reading room, has a collection of language learning, books, extensive reading, materials, textbooks, comic books, novels, uh, light literature, all kinds of graphic novels, things that are easier to read, but will hopefully keep students happy and reading so that once they graduate from university and no longer have a textbook in front of them, they will still want to read. Just below the East Asian reading room is the East Asian collection. Among the books are four mutant turtles in masks and their rat master. They save the world with martial arts and then go chow down on some pizza. Know who I'm talking about? Co-creator and artist of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Peter Laird, donated a statue of his famous characters to UMass. It lives on the 21st floor. Laird graduated from UMass in 76 and, gifted his, and gave the gift to his alma mater in 2012. A lot of my friends with younger siblings bring them to say hi to these cartoon characters. The Meadow Turtles stand 17 miles from the comic's birthplace in Northampton, Massachusetts. The library's top floors were actually my favorite to explore, but that's enough of a break. If I don't hurry up, I'll be late for class. This is the 16th floor. There are two computer classrooms here for IT minor lectures. However, any professor may reserve these rooms. I went into the smaller one with 26 Dell desktops dispersed over six long tables. These are small intimate settings for hands-on learning. Yet this style of teaching isn't limited to the 16th floor. It pervades most of the classes taught at the library, including the food writing course I dropped in on. This is Carol Kinnair. She's the director of communications at the W.E.B. Du Bois Library, and she teaches on the side. Conair baked cookies for class today, but only because she didn't have time to bake king cake for Mardi Gras. Thirteen students sit at long tables around the small room. Cookbooks from Conair's personal collection and the special collections lie on the tables. It's nothing like your typical 300-person lecture. Everything is literally within arm's distance. It's approachable. And that's what Canair is all about, accessibility. Treat it like they're an editorial board. Like if they're going to go work on a publication, this is what editors do. They help each other. And again, it's more about this access. Like, I feel like there's a barrier of people saying, I want to interview that person. And so let's just go out to the field and go meet with people and feel what it's like to talk to them and sit there with a notepad. Canair doesn't even lecture in a classroom. She squeezes her students into the W.E.B. Du Bois Center. 
she says involving the Du Bois Center in her lectures engages students' curiosity about library resources. I feel very honored to teach in the Du Bois Center because I try to bring it in every class if I can. I mean, his life was so long and he wrote so many things that you couldn't usually find something. But, you know, I think we expect people to know um, stuff about Du Bois, but they don't. Conair goes beyond the walls of the classroom. She takes her students on field trips to taste cheese or watch dairy cows at the UMass farm. But the active learning occurs in the library as well. Students use archival items and curated Instagram posts. They navigate library databases for food history research. Conair says these interactions increase the probability of students taking advantage of these resources again in the future. Journalism student Madeline Zalazo says Conair's teaching makes the library more accessible. I'll have professors be like, oh, go do some digging in the databases. Yeah. Go, go look at the archives. And I'm like, where are those? Yeah. And to have someone like bring me there and to actually be immersed in it for a class is like a really good introduction. Sophomore Ray Mave visited every single floor of the library for the first time in Conair's class. Mave says the number of resources here left her dumbfounded. I think there's so many more resources over here. Like, it's crazy the things that I found this, like, one month versus the three years that I've been here. Oh, I didn't know there was an archives uh, floor on top. Conair says assuming that students know how to use the library is the biggest deterrent of actually using the library. Conair believes nothing works as well as showing students how to use library resources, and student survey responses indicate students who use these resources once are much more likely to use them again. And I think that sometimes we assume people know something and we could just simply show them. So I think that's just part of it that especially faculty, and they may be daunted sometimes by library use or just know their one particular thing that they do. Feel like it's important for especially for them to to feel like like this information is mine to have and it is it's right there right now the class is over it's time to continue with the tour but the last thing i want to do is take a stuffed elevator that's going to stop six different times i'm going to go take the stairs that way, I can stop along some of my favorite study floors and listen to the W.E.B. Du Bois Library during midterms. There isn't a single place on campus with more panic and grind than the W.E.B. Du Bois Library during midterms. Trying to find interviewees during test season is one of the biggest challenges I've faced as a student journalist. It's impossible not to interrupt someone cramming for an exam. Hi, sorry, I'm doing a podcast on the library and how students use the library. Do you guys have like two minutes to talk to me or are you guys like deep in midterms? Yeah, you guys have two minutes to talk to me or are you deep in oh, midterms? Sorry, we have an exam. I can see why the students who did talk to me made it clear that this is a place for learning, not interviewing. So what do you guys like about the area at the bottom? Oh. <laughs> 
not yeah. my house. Yeah. <laughs> Your bed's not right there, I guess. It's quiet. I like the view, mm -hmm. too. Um, obviously, like, I'm focusing, but sometimes it is nice to take a break and just look out the windows. I think I'm kind of conditioned because I went here for undergrad, so this is, like, very much a space that I'm familiar with being purely academic as opposed to being more life and functional. It's nice to be surrounded by people who are also focused and like all, we're all studying so it feels like other people are suffering with you. You hear that? Yeah, you feel that energy keeps yeah. you motivated in a way. Yeah. It's true. You're surrounded by people who have work to do and like you also have work to do so kind of all working towards the goal. It's nice. We're working on dynamics homework. Just okay. She's the you're, only one among us who's vibing. I, like, there's very different stress levels at this table. <laughs> Yeah, you pick that up. This side is heavily weighted. <laughs> if I need to individually sit and study, then I feel like I'd come to the library. But if I need, like, just if I want to sit with people, if I want to sit in an environment where there are a lot of people, I feel like I would rather sit in, like, the student yeah. union or the ILC because it's, like, prettier than the group studies or the downstairs yeah. here. Mm -hmm. The floor with the most study space is by far the loudest in the library. That floor is our final stop. This is the Learning Commons, the last floor of the library. Printers lie in one corner next to cubicles for small group study. Across the way, the digital media lab oversees 3D printing, soundproof audio recording booths, and an extended reality room complete with virtual reality headsets for checkout. All around lie rows and rows of computers. Classes assigned paperless homework with websites like Moodle and Canvas long before the pandemic shifted classes fully virtual. So my peers and I believed libraries would quickly decay from lack of use. Intern Dean of Libraries and Head of Student Success and Engagement, Sarah Hutton, couldn't agree with me less. She even laughed when I asked if libraries were archaic. Hutton has worked in academic libraries for over 20 years. She saw the library industry over the years move from solely supporting academic studies to supporting all aspects of student life. We're viewed more narrowly in scope to support the academic success of students. And there was this shift in the research and the literature and work in librarianship that we really should be working more with student affairs and campus life. We should really be working more with a lot of the outreach programming, you know, residence life and, you know, counseling and mental health. And so I really leaned into that direction as well as the changing nature of um, knowledge production. Knowledge production used to only include writing and publishing research papers, but now it involves all types of mediums used to spread information. This includes creating podcasts on climate change, virtual landscapes informed by archival documents, or TikToks chronicling Black Lives Matter protests. Libraries like Du Bois aren't falling behind technical advancements. They're embracing and advancing them. Hutton's vision for the library exceeds information in paper pages and online databases. Her mission revolves around one word, open. Specifically, open access education. 
the transition to open access education centers around free educational content, replacing expensive textbooks and paywall journals. It also pushes to release information that's usually withheld to the public, like raw data sets from scientific studies. Another area of open education focuses on helping students discover and navigate such resources. For example, using Creative Commons audio and video. When the pandemic hit, Hutton saw the potential impact of open access resources to alleviate the financial burden of textbooks. And so there are publishers who are like, we're going to provide this content open access to you to help you know, alleviate some of that pressure and burden. And we're like, wow, that's fantastic. Well, guess what? The same publishers took it back toward the end of the pandemic. They're trying to jack up the prices to make up for the money that they lost as a company over that time. The knowledge production publishing industry in academia is rotten. It's not in the public interest. Each step of the process to switch to open educational resources involves open discourse. First, Hutton listens to student activist groups like MassPerg that push for open resources to gauge student needs. You have saved students like collectively like millions of dollars. And she then communicates with textbook publishers to change licensing agreements and encourages professors to adopt free content. For instance, my Biology 152 class used textbook PDF scans and free journal articles rather than a traditional microbiology textbook that would have costed more than $100. Hutton transformed UMass into a leader of open education. Our libraries work with the Massachusetts Department of Higher Education, Open Education Network, and the Creative Commons Network to distribute free resources. No more $100 online textbooks. Open education represents one of the many ways that the W.E.B. Du Bois Library assimilates technology into its many services. But libraries with books and paper records and physical documents aren't going away anytime soon. A little room ironically placed in the learning commons next to all the MacBook computers and 3D printers perfectly demonstrates that fact. It's the microfilm viewing room. Microfilm are rolls of film that contain an entire document or book. The viewer places the film on a projector that enlarges them for reading. Jeremy Smith explained to me the theory behind microfilm. Back in the day, uh, this was like going to revolutionize libraries. Yeah, I'm sorry, I'm short. Um, so like in the teens and 20s, people were saying, this is the future of libraries. We're going to take books and we're going to shrink them down to fit on one thing and then you'll put them in a machine to magnify them. And then we'll save all this space and we won't have to build these huge buildings anymore. Normally, the original copies of the documents remain at its original library, and other places bought the microfilmed versions. Smith says this was one way to share documents before the internet. But well, we had just, I mean, you can see here, there's rows and rows. All the learning commons was just this. Microfilm is actually still used today. Not everything is digitized yet, and some niche documents like small town newspapers in Virginia can only be accessed on microfilm. 
a vinyl record player with headphones, a CD player, and a VHS player station dwell in the same room. All relics of the past that remain relevant in libraries in spite of the growing reliance on computers. I feel like I'm pulled into various decades. One hand in the 60s, one foot in the 90s, and my head in the 2020s. History becomes personal here. A choose-your-own-adventure book where you can relive any time with the documents and technology from that era. We've reached the end of our tour. I used to find the idea of this ugly brick building being a UMass symbol so strange. It took two months exploring the W.E.B. Du Bois Library's artwork, study spaces, archives, and hidden rooms to realize that this building encompasses every aspect of the UMass community. W.E.B. Du Bois said it best. The function of the university is not simply to teach breadwinning or to furnish teachers for public schools or to be the center of polite society. It is, above all, to be the organ of that fine adjustment between real life and the growing knowledge of life, an adjustment which forms the secret of civilization. I'm Emily Klein, and thank you for listening to It Happened in Amherst. On the next episode of It Happened in Amherst. Matt McCall's tenure as the UMass men's basketball head coach is over. The team welcomes former South Carolina coach Frank Martin, and we look back at the past five years in UMass basketball's history to better understand its future. Um, you know, I think at the end of the day, when you look at my tenure here, I, th I think we, you know, we really just lack some consistency. You know, um, consistency with rosters, consistency with staff. Um, and, it, and it's hard to, to have sustain, sustained success um, with that. On this next episode, what UMass men's basketball learned from McCall's five-year tenure. This episode of It Happened in Amherst was hosted and written by Emily Klein. It is produced by Emily Klein, Izzy D'Amico, and Dr. Kelsey Whipple. A special thanks to Jeremy Smith and the UMass archival staff. This episode is dedicated to Colin Cavell, a member of the Petition Coalition who contributed critical information to this podcast. 